0: welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. The history of medicine is often framed as a story of triumph and progress, but in his book Maladies of Empire, Jim Downs offers a different perspective revealing how the field of epidemiology was in many ways shaped by exploitation and suffering caused by war, slavery and colonialism. I spoke to him to find out more. The subtitle of your book Maladies of Empire is How Colonialism, Slavery and War Transformed Medicine and I think that that's quite a nice neat summary of what we're going to be discussing today. Um, So, Could you introduce us to the subject by explaining the connection that you draw between those things, colonialism, slavery and war, and medical progress?
2: Sure. So basically what's really fascinating is that between roughly 1755 and 1866, the medical medical knowledge goes through a major transformation, a major revolution. And what I identified in my research was that physicians begin to sort of gain new understandings of epidemiology by looking at how infectious disease spreads across large populations. And so when an epidemic broke out in London, and there were many famous epidemics that broke out in London, there were cholera epidemics in Soho and other places. And so these doctors were often... Uh, caught up in the moment of the chaos and the craziness and the terror. And so they tried to respond in real time, but ultimately they were dealing with enormous amounts of morbidity and mortality. The expansion of empire, of the British empire largely, allows doctors to gain a type of bird's eye view to begin to observe the spread of infectious disease in different settings. And so what I've noticed was that between this period, between the century sort of arc between 1755 and 1866, doctors are learning about how disease is spreading in three major settings. They're seeing it spread in slave ships, they're seeing it spread in colonial regimes, and they're seeing it spread in battlefields. And so From a social historian's perspective, these are completely different worlds. Uh, And so you would never sort of like necessarily put them together. But from the vantage point of medicine, they're offering doctors with a sort of bird's eye view to sort of observe what we would refer to as built environments. The slave ship becomes a built environment. The plantation becomes a built environment. The battlefield becomes a built environment. And doctors are learning about how disease spreading. And unlike their contemporaries in London who are faced with the chaos of the moment, they have a little bit of distance sometimes from from that, or they've been deployed specifically to study epidemic disease in that particular location. And so they have that kind of distance embedded within their analysis.
0: So what was it about those environments, largely very Unpleasant environments. If we're talking about slave ships or battlefields, that made them particularly useful um, laboratories, as it were, to study. So it
2: was sort of it was sort of unexpected. So I look at this chronologic. The book begins um, with into the international slave trade, and it's looking at slave ships. So we can just use that as the sort of first example. Doctors were constantly deployed on these ships, often to monitor the health care of the crew. And, but what the ships did was they created an unprecedented environment. They placed tons of enslaved Africans um, at the bottom of ships. This created a particularly new environment. So some people would say, well, wait, weren't sailors sick? Weren't the crew sick? Didn't they have problems overseas? Sure, but they were not living under the same conditions. So Thomas Strotter, who is one of the leading characters in the book, um reports on going to the bottom of the ships and seeing and he re- reports he says he's seeing the people sort of um crammed together positioned spoon like they're like their bodies are sort of mingled together and they're forced to be left without any room to breathe and all of a sudden um they're not fed well and we know this from the history of slavery and we know that many people died more from the transport from Africa to the Americas. And there's lots of reasons why they die from infectious disease, et cetera. But what happens is Trotter, for example, begins to sort of investigate why are they becoming sick? And, and so there's ideas for him, for example, about scurvy. And people know about scurvy and he's taking lectures about scurvy, but he's witnessing in a real time. So imagine a doctor in a typical practice. They might see one or two people with scurvy and then three people- Now you're in a position where you're seeing hundreds of people infected with scurvy, and it's connected to the conditions that they're placed in. And so they begin taking copious notes. And the other part of the book that I think is like really sort of important, which almost seems to you could almost dismiss it without really noticing that it's an actor, and that is the colonial bureaucracy. And I As someone living in 2021, I hate bureaucracy, I hate all these these forms, but colonialism and slavery created all of this paper and these records, these doctors had to sort of uh, write about what they experienced and the process of writing and reporting sort of led them into becoming epidemiologists and led them into sort of thinking about the spread of disease.
0: I wonder if you could give us some examples of that, um, times when imperial bureaucracy helped track the spread of disease.
2: One of this sort of um, major protagonists in the book um, is a guy by the name of Gavin Milroy. And he's sort of in the 1840s. He's very active in these quarantine debates. We're talking a lot about the pandemic today, the word quarantine. Everyone sort of knows what it means at that time. It was debated constantly in the same way it's being debated now, whether it's for the public health or for the economy. These are not new terms. These are constantly, you know, um, debated and interpreted. And so what's happened is uh, the crown sends him uh, he's in they they sent him to Jamaica um, in the in 1850 to study the cholera pandemic because cholera has spread from India to Europe to the Americas. And what he does is he starts to write to other physicians uh who were deployed throughout the British Caribbean. And even he has contact with some of the Spanish doctors in Cuba, and he has contact with some of even the American doctors, and he's collecting information. So today, when we think about like the tracking of the pandemic, we can actually see a map and we're actually seeing it in different places. First, Wuhan, then Iran, then Italy, then London, U.S., In the 19th century, the colonial bureaucracy created that mechanism that enabled physicians to actually talk to each other. So again, if we go back to early uh, 19th century, early 18th century London or 18th century New York or 18th century Paris, what would be the mechanism that would allow doctors to communicate across villages, across state lines, across? There wasn't any. I mean, there were a couple of medical journals, but there wasn't a systematic way of collecting the reports. Colonialism instituted a bureaucratic mechanism that allowed these doctors to communicate it. Now, I want to say this because you can hear this and you're like, wow, wow, that's that's great. Colonialism is great. That's a wonderful... This is not a sanguine history. If we follow the plot of these doctors, we get a kind of like triumphant narrative, like, wow, this is really great. What I've done throughout the book and what I'm try to do right now is to say that these doctors only learned as a result of subjugation, uh, dispossession, oppression, slavery, and other forms of violence. And the people that they studied helped to inform their analysis, yet the colonial record only emphasizes them as their leading protagonist. So throughout the book, I constantly am trying to say, wait a minute, yes, this is an advance, but at the expense of another group. And so that those subjugated populations often help to inform scientific knowledge. So I, I'll just end on this note by saying that, like, the colonial bureaucracy is great. And we often think in, in the spirit of what we used to call in the 1980s and 90s, multiculturalism. What does science have to say about multiculturalism? Well, look at, look at it this way. Science wouldn't be science unless it depended on and built on the backs of dispossessed populations. This is not just a history lesson. This is also a lesson about the making uh, of science.
0: Um, And to add to that point, it wasn't always a case of doctors turning up somewhere and observing a situation that already existed without their interference. You also document cases of doctors being exploitative in themselves. So I'm thinking of cases that you look at of um, enslaved children being intentionally infected with smallpox in order to cultivate more vaccines. I wonder if you could speak a bit about that side of things as well. Okay, so
2: this was... This is like the biggest like, groundbreaking <laughs> find in the book. And again, it goes back to this earlier question about colonial b- bureaucracy, because when you go into the archive and you're like, let me search doctors, let me search medicine, let me search race. OK, you're not going to find a file or a box that says slaveholders, exploitation of enslaved bodies. The way that I found this, just because this is a history podcast and I can kind of like give a little bit of the detail There was a, it was a detective story. It was about using court martial records of prisoners of war in the United States. And this court martial record basically left clues that these doctors were engaging in this kind of practice. And they talked about it so nonchalantly. So basically what the practice was, was we could think about this today. There was a shortage of vaccinations. There, There was a shortage of vaccine material. And there was huge debates about how to do smallpox, and I talk about it in the book how to vaccinate against smallpox.
0: And we're talking here about the Civil War. We're talking right? about the American America, Civil
2: right? War, right? And so there's so so there's a lot of different procedures on um, how to do that. There's something called arm to arm inoculation, which is developed by an enslaved person, which is prominent throughout Asia and Africa, and then even throughout the Americas in the early 18th century. Which is if someone has smallpox. You take the lymph from this sort of pustule that's formed on their body and you sort of, I'm doing it visually because you can see me, but our listeners can. And you basically sort of inject it into their arm so that they develop a mild form of it. Well, that's one way of guarding against and preventing it. But by the late 18th century, there is an understanding of vaccine. The problem is during the American civil war, It's hard to get vaccine from a northern dispensary that you're at war with (laughs) to the south. And so what physicians begin to do is they begin to purposely infect enslaved children. And their argument is, because they're, again, watching how smallpox uh, unfold in patients, and it's it's causing other disorders and other problems, so they're afraid if they – if they um, harvest the vaccine matter on someone else's body that it would create a kind of comorbidity with other issues, So they kind of fall into this notion that enslaved children are pure. It's like this sort of pro-slavery parable. And they're also worried about sexually transmitted infections. so they're thinking children are not are pure. They then start thinking infants are even the purest. And so they purposely infect infants and children with smallpox so that they develop the virus, so that their bodies can then produce the pustules and the lymph. And then that lymph could be sort of scraped off and used as vaccine matter to inoculate white Southern people and and, and soldiers. And so this is a ghastly procedure. This is a problematic thing. There's this whole thing in the book that I talk about in terms of how this practice has been hidden, but this was a common practice once I started doing further research. In the Spanish empire, when they're trying to get vaccine matter from Europe to Mexico and from Europe to South America, they purposely infect orphans um, with the virus so that the orphans can be placed on boats and then travel overseas to the Americas. Um, this happens again in, throughout Asia, and I, ha- I map it all out how it works in, in various in various places. The point is they feel, again, like when we were talking about vaccines, when vaccines first developed in the in the US and the UK and around the world, how can we transport them? How can we keep them cold? How can we do all this? Again, not a new concept. They knew they couldn't keep the vaccine. It would never um, survive a trip. But if you infect it into the body of an orphan, it could survive. So again, this is like mind blowing and and really disturbing information. And it's again to the point of when we think about epidemiological advances, when we think about vaccination, it is again on the backs of the dispossessed people in, in the world.
0: All of this, this horrifying and as you say, very disturbing material it really really changes the the story of medical history doesn't it if we incorporate it in into that story because because it's often told as a triumphalist one of victory over disease how have people kind of responded to that um that have encountered your research
2: i think it depends i mean i think it depends on who who you're talking to um i think there's been at least within the united states um a focus on thinking about slavery as not only a brutal institution, um, but also as an institution that was central to the development of American capitalism. So um, historians in the United States in particular are making the claim that we need to sort of see the legacy of slavery and how it led to economic development. My book is basically saying slavery had another legacy it helped to contribute to the development of science. So within that audience, (laughs) um, it's a continuation and it's been supported. There's a lot of work right now um, in the United States around something called the 1619 Project, which has been a way to sort of say, where's our starting point of the nation? Is it 1776 when we broke away from y'all? Or was it, (laughs) is it 1619 when We had the beginning of um, the first 20 enslaved Africans arrived to the Chesapeake. And so there's a huge debate about the the influence of slavery and what it meant. The book does, in fact, um, participate in those conversations. But then, of course, you know, I don't know. I mean, how people will react to sort of thinking about um, this is questioning the doctors. I will say that oftentimes when I'm writing about these people and I'm living with Gavin Milroy for the past 10 years, I'm like, are you upset with me? But like, I think that there's a way in which I'm not also indicting him. I'm also talking about what his work was and I'm not, and I'm reporting on his work and they weren't malicious. This, The Southern doctors infecting enslaved Africans, I mean, enslaved people with vaccine. Yes, they are, they're vicious and awful. And that falls into a larger history of medical experimentation. But a lot of these doctors are not, Operating with the same kind of mantra, they're often, you know, observing what they're seeing. The enemy here, the evil part here, is how slavery and colonialism has created impoverished communities and has created epidemic disease to skyrocket. I just, I just want to clarify this because I think this is really an important point. There, there are some doctors out there that are part of scientific racism that are, and I talk about this as actually changes in the American context with the rise of the American civil war and the creation of something called the sanitary commission, where they actually harbor racist beliefs. There's also doctors and I talk, our medical professionals like Florence Nightingale, like Gavin Milroy, who absolutely have st- made statements that are racist, but are not necessarily Engaging in these practices out of a spirit of white supremacy, and I think that within the context of the history of medicine, we have to be careful. We have to be really nuanced and dig really deeply into the sources, and avoid just sort of saying like every doctor in the 18th and 19th century was X. Like, well, that's just kind of silly. I mean, from the historical perspective, we always have to be more careful. So that's what I try to do in my book, and I and, and I'm trying to do hopefully now, to elucidate that it really depends on the doctor, it depends on the condition, it depends on the place. And the last thing you want to do is sort of blank, you know, sort of generalize um, about them.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
2: The history of science is absolutely dependent upon the subjugation of various people. And we can't see slavery as something you learned in a history class and science as something that you learn over here. But there's this moment that the book aims to sort of do, which is to say these things are interconnected.
3: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting...
0: So just to kind of go back to basics, what were some of the primary theories about the ways that disease was spread at the start of this era and how had they been transformed by the end of it? Okay,
2: so my, my whole sort of book and focus is on epidemiology and how they're understanding the spread and control of an, an, an infectious disease. And I'm looking at this sort of this world of empire and how that helped contribute to these ideas. Next to my book is the larger history of medicine and the history of medicine at this time is going through a major transformation that is to say uh people are beginning to move away from this argument that epidemic disease and disease in general or sickness in general is the result of supernatural forces many people believe um in around from 1755 to 1866 that this idea that God or some other kind of supernatural force is the reason why you're sick, that's actually changing. So most historians have already documented that. And they're looking at different things. They're looking at things like um, the environment. They're looking at miasma theory. That's a very common ancient sort of belief that sort of crops up throughout Europe and the Americas. And basically that just sort of means that when you have things like rotten vegetation or trash or rubbish, whatever – it, it emanates a kind of vapor and odor. So they're like, well, that smells. And people are getting sick. So they're, they're kind of drawing a causal relationship. But I also want to say this as a historian, I emphasize this with my students all the time. We can draw a timeline. And I do it on the board all the time. And I'm like, all right, look, here's supernatural forces. Here's miasma thinking. Here's, you know, um, germ theory. But you have to sort of understand that these things don't have easy stops and starts. If I said, God forbid, I said to you, I heard of someone who got cancer and they got lung cancer. What's the first reaction? Were they a smoker? Well, that's a moral judgment, right? So you've deserved it. So that hasn't gone anywhere. Someone else gets cancer. People pray to God. God's going to change it. We haven't necessarily, you know, um, divorced ourselves from these ideas. So what's happened at this moment is that what was fascinating for me was if I went into if I went in the library, I would say at this particular moment, every historian of medicine is saying medicine is going through a change. So that's not new. What I say is it's going through a change. And it's not just because doctors in Europe are developing new theories. It's going through a change because it's happening at the same exact time that the slave trade is happening that British colonialism is expanding and that you have two major modern wars, the Crimean War and the Civil War. And these events ought not to be divorced from this larger transformation of medicine. But if we only focus on the laboratories and the doctors and we don't look at the patients, we continue to tell the history of medicine as a story that only focuses on changes in healing and therapeutics and other other understandings without realizing these broader transformations provided the context for changes in medicine.
0: Let's talk about war then a little bit. Um, So you, of course, have mentioned the Crimean War and the American Civil War. What were some of the major um, developments medically during those conflicts?
2: So one of them is this. So one, uh, the Crimean War. So one would be, all right, well, there are some doctors at this time who are actually thinking, you know, sanitation actually causes people to get sick. But the question then becomes, how does that get promulgated and broadcasted and advertised to everyday English people? And the issue is that the Crimean War introduces simultaneously um, the development of modern journalism. So um, what happens is journalists actually are reporting on the ground Um, about the battles in Crimea, but they're also reporting about high rates of infections, disease, and sickness. And they're they're comparing it to the French. They're like, look, they don't have these problems. Their hospitals aren't like this. They're comparing it to the Russians. So Nightingale, Florence Nightingale, who's often heralded as the lady with the lantern, reads these reports. And she takes a brigade of women to Crimea. And so ultimately what happens is that, changes two things. One, it changes the public understanding of disease because now it's getting advertised and promulgated within the newspapers and it's becoming part of of public conversation. People's family members are dying and they're dying in the hospitals. They're not dying on the battlefield. So that's changing how people are thinking about disease. And then secondly, um, Everyone's invested in the fact that all of these people are not dying in the battlefield, but in the hospital. And so Nightingale, um, I I sort of describe her in the book as an unrecognized epidemiologist because she's actually studying very carefully the design of the hospitals. She's thinking about ventilation. She's thinking about this this the engineering of how things are all sort of set up. And she's arguing that this is actually leading to the spread of disease. So in that particular case, the, the battlefield, the hospital become these major sites to observe infectious disease because these soldiers are, she actually reports, these soldiers are actually coming into the hospital, not so healthy, but they're dying and becoming more unhealthy once they, once they're in there.
0: One thing um, I wanted to ask you about was jail fever. A lot of the research around jail fever revolved around crowded environments and and air. So what was jail fever and how did ideas about it change? Right.
2: So jail fever, um, and sometimes you see it as J-A-I-L and then the British G-A-O-L. Um, it basically becomes this sort of umbrella term to talk about the spread of infectious disease. Some people think it's typhus. Some people think it's other things. We're, we don't really know what it is. And so somebody like a critical person listening to this could be like, look, Jim, um, we've heard what you just described about in the Crimean War. We've heard about this. What well, we've heard about it in confined places like prisons, that is to say that prisons and even French hospitals before the French Revolution were crowded and were incubators of disease, and they were spreading disease. But the reality of it is is that since these were dispossessed populations, people really didn't care why. And it wasn't until, as I describe in my book, there's a guy by the name of Howard who goes around and starts to study and explain why you have the spread of infectious disease. So in one one way, we can sort of think about what's happening with jail fever and its connection to empire is that the jails were the sites that produced um, crowded conditions with a lack of ventilation because they didn't realize there was a need for windows and, and, and fresh air, what they would sometimes call a supply of air. But ultimately, that was just one particular site. And many people, with the exception of a few reformers, didn't really think about it and didn't really care about it. The expansion of empire leads to the proliferation of other crowded spaces, other jails, and also more hospitals. It increases the scale and the scope of this problem, and it makes jail fever more prominent and forces people to now think about it because now jail fever is becoming, or infectious disease is becoming um, an issue on the battlefield. It's actually... Um, a detriment to a military aim. Now it's becoming a detriment to a colonial endeavor. Now it's becoming a detriment to transportation of enslaved people to the Americas. So now that small little problem that some doctors may have known about is now becoming an issue for people who are responsible for the money. To actually sort of and 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 the capital to actually start thinking about
0: was there any sense of um, Western medical practitioners learning anything or taking on any knowledge on board from elsewhere in the world, imperial subjects or enslaved
2: people? Right. So it. So yes, absolutely. These these doctors are learning from. Indigenous populations are learning from enslaved populations, et cetera. And there's a lot of work out there that's doing that has already done that. Charlotte Fett's work in the American context and in, in, um, in, in the slave system, um, in the American South, and then Pablo Gomez and the Caribbean. There's already been that kind of work that kind of interrogates what are cures, what are healing methods. Um, what I sort of describe in the book are some cases where you see that, especially with smallpox Um uh, inoculation that develops from enslaved people. Um, Trotter notices, uh, that the cure for scurvy, uh, is from actually sucking out the juices from citrus fruits. And there's already ideas from James Lind and other people about how to do it. But, um, he learns from seeing the enslaved people, on the ships do it. And he learns from the people on the islands because the ships are arriving and these people are coming in similar conditions. And so he's gaining that material. This book is something, this book is doing something a little different. So there are historians have kind of already said healing practices are not just Western influence. They come from indigenous people. They come from enslaved people. I am interested in thinking more about how does epidemiological thinking develop? That is to say, less about healing and more about how they've developed a discipline to think about the spread and control of disease. Yes, there's healing, which could be influenced from those different traditions and places, but how has the science actually been created? And that science is not cannot be divorced from the social arrangements, the built environment that slavery, colonialism developed. So it's a different kind of question that's not necessarily about healing. The more important point is that slavery creates a bureaucracy that allows them to keep records, that allows them to gain a bird's eye view, that allows them to develop a a broader empirical way of understanding infectious disease.
0: This might be an impossible question, because obviously there was just a broad sweep of change over this period. But if you could pin down maybe one or two changes that were really the most fundamental, d- um, dependent on these environments, what would you say they are?
2: I'm trying to show that there is already an idea of epidemiological thinking that grows, that, that people are thinking about um, uh, control of epidemics, they're thinking about the cause, they're thinking about infection rates, et cetera. But once you get to someone like Gavin Milroy, who's actually deployed to Jamaica to study the spread of cholera, when he comes back to London, he joins something called the London Epidemiological Society in 1850, the same year his report comes out on cholera. So what I found were all of these doctors were who formed the epidemiological society were deployed in brazil they were deployed in india they were deployed in the british caribbean they come back to london with their experience with their knowledge and they formed the field of epidemiology we however think the field of epidemiology begins with Jon Snow, not to be confused with Jon Snow of Game of Thrones fame, but Jon Snow who goes into Soho and tracks the fact that that the cholera outbreak results from the water pump. Okay, Jon Snow is part of the epidemiological society, but he's in the room listening to people like this guy McWilliam who goes down to Cape Verde to understand the spread of yellow fever. And he's listening to him do the interviews. He's listening to his methods. So again, we think of some John Snow as like, oh, he's a pioneer. He was an anesthesiologist. And then he wanted to understand how it spread among the poor. And he was this sort of sole enterprising individual. No, he's part of a larger collection of doctors who around the empire – developed a set of practices to understand the spread of disease, and then share that information as part of the London Epidemiological Society. So when he goes out to Soho, he knows how to do this from what they've said. And so that's the kind of like breakthrough point of the book is to say that the big contribution is that epidemiology is a field that began globally. And so even today, when we're talking about the pandemic, and we're saying, well, wait, is it Wuhan? Is it where was it in Iran, or why doesn't New Zealand have that many cases? Well, that type of global comparative thinking is embedded within the actual definition of epidemiology. We've always looked at other countries. Um, today, the New York Times, every day, in fact, I, I photo, I screenshot it. They do a track on the, the spread of the epidemic around the world. That's a kind of epidemiological thinking that can trace its roots. To the creation of the epidemiological society in 1850,
0: and is that what you would see as the biggest legacy of all of this yes. on today? Yes,
2: yes, that we that we the tools that we are using today to control the epidemic began on slave ships, on colonial plantations, as a part of imperial projects. The use of statistics that people like Nightingale were using developed before the advent of germ theory, as a way to understand the spread of infectious disease, we now use statistics without thinking as like, well, we we think about them, but we think about, we use them without thinking as a sort of metric to um, understand uh, the spread of infectious disease. And that's what people did at that time. And so mapping, you know, so like mapping is another thing. Milvoy was mapping. Milvoy was getting information from various doctors around the British Caribbean. That's a legacy that we're using today. We're constantly drawing on sort of all kinds of maps to understand how um, COVID-19 is spreading. So epidemiology sort of begins at this this moment.
0: And finally, how would you want your research and your book to alter the way that we look back at medical history?
2: I want us to say that the, the archive may have left a lot of these doctors and other medical professionals as the leading protagonist, but they would not have been able to do this work if it were not for the fact that various forms of power have created, have used enacted violence in order to create something like a slave ship, have created something like a plantation regime that have allowed physicians to develop these ideas by studying these dispossessed populations. That these people, and that's what the whole point of the book is, to sort of say, these people helped doctors develop their theory. They were the evidence that helped to prove their arguments. And yet when we go back and look at the history of epidemiology, we can name a handful of leading pioneers. It's not just the pioneering people. It's the dispossessed populations. It's those who suffered that helped make these diseases visible and these theories workable. And so the history of science is absolutely dependent upon the subjugation of various people. And we can't see slavery as something you learned in a history class and science as something that you learn over here. But there's this moment that the book aims to sort of do, which is to say these things are interconnected.
0: That was Jim Downs. His book... Maladies of Empire, How Colonialism, Slavery and War Transformed Medicine is out now, published in the UK by Bellnat Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in next on Friday when historian Keith Lowe will be exploring the Imperial War Museum's new galleries on the Second World War and the Holocaust.